chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. I'm your host, Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It is sizzling hot outside, but here at Romcom Killjoys, we like to serve our hot takes ice cold. So, you heard that right. Uh, we are having our first annual Christmas in July month here at the show, where we are only going to cover the uh, fabled, glorious, and often terrible Christmas romcom. And uh, here to discuss maybe. I don't want to say the most beloved Christmas rom-com. There are probably others I can think of that hold that title, but perhaps maybe the most beloved of the modern Christmas rom-com. And that is a little film called Love Actually. Here to discuss Love Actually with me today are my, my friends and colleagues, Lindsay Barr and Jared Strange. Lindsay, could you introduce yourself to the people? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Happy to have a conversation about love, actually. Uh, my name is Lindsay. I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland studying theater and performance studies alongside Janelle and Jared. Uh, I am a professional dramaturg, really interested in musical theater and uh, representations of madness. Thanks, Lindsay. And Jared, could you introduce yourself as well? Hi, I'm Jared Strange. Uh, I'm also a PhD student in uh, theater and performance studies. Uh, I study uh, sports, particularly soccer and its performances on stage and off stage. I want to give a little shout out to my uh, Aunt Karen. We both stand this film, uh, Love Actually. It's a film that we, we bond over. So hi, Auntie Karen. I also want to say um, how glad I am to be a man discussing this film because this these men need some apologizing for and I'm so happy that I will be able to take on that role. Let's get into it. Uh, for the special occasion kicking off our uh, Christmas in July, I thought that we would host a little bit of a debate, a little bit of a variation from our normal format. But we will start with, as usual, our summary of the film. Love Actually, The Year of Our Lord 2003. Here's our summary. Nine intertwined stories examine the complexities of the one emotion that connects us all, love. Among the characters explored are David, played by Hugh Grant, the handsome newly elected British Prime Minister who falls for a young junior staffer, Martine McCutcheon, and Sarah, Laura Linney, a graphic designer whose devotion to her mentally ill brother complicates her love life, and finally, Harry, played by the late, great, and amazing Alan Rickman a married man tempted by his attractive new secretary. Now, normally at this point in the show, I had asked my guests, well, this is what Google says that this film is about, but what is it really about? But today, my dear listeners, we have a different question on the table, a more specific question that really impacts the legacy of this oft-beloved film. And that debate question before us today is, is love actually actually garbage? And here to debate either side, Lindsay is going to debate why the film is garbage, and Jared is going to debate why it's not. Lindsay, why is love actually garbage? You know, Janelle, I'm so glad you asked this question. Uh, it's imperative, I think, to understanding the film. I believe that love actually is a lot of misogyny, a lot of demeaning women, 
wrapped in fat phobia under the guise of the Christmas spirit that we find so jovial and joyous. And I think that using the Christmas spirit, as is posited in the movie many times, to get away with such misogynistic behavior, demeaning women, talking poorly of women, using them as objects, is really an affront to the Christmas spirit and the Christmas time that many hold dear. So with that, before we get into the specifics, I will say... Not only is the message garbage, but the vehicle in which the message is delivered makes it doubly garbage. To debate the other side of this question, why is love actually not actually garbage? Jared, why is love actually not actually garbage? Well, you know, the question is not, is love actually garbage? I wouldn't say that love actually is garbage. I think a more interesting question is, is it good? I think that my take on this particular film is that it's not garbage. It has redeeming qualities. It is not completely uh, to be cast out into the the fire entirely. But whether or not it's really a good film, that's going to be also up for debate. And I'm not sure I can occupy that position uh, with any sort of comfort. I also want to point out that uh, summary of the film. I'd never heard that summary of the film before that mentioned three storylines. That's about a third of the things that actually happen in that film. So it's very interesting. That's a whole other thing we can talk about that summary because that's like saying Game of Thrones was about three different people and that does not hold up if you've watched this film. I'm going to invite Lindsay and Jared to ask each other questions regarding this topic and perhaps we will, given the responses so far, massage our topic a little bit. Maybe there are before us two questions and they are different depending on how you think about this film. Is love actually actually garbage? Or is love actually kind of good? Jared, I admire your position that you've named for yourself, that the specifically the dichotomy between is it good and is it garbage? So I'm curious for you, why do you find yourself watching the movie each year? Assuming you do, maybe you don't. But what, what about it draws you? I'm interested in this before asking questions about the content itself. Did I used to watch this annually? I don't think I quite did. Maybe it sort of more or less came about annually or, or close enough. But I think, and I was trying to ask myself this while I was watching the movie, is what is actually attractive to me in this movie? And I think that like any montage film, it's that I have particular favorite moments or pieces or chunks that come up and it's wrapped up in a device, an organizational device, or uh, whatever holds all of these disparate pieces together is something that I like. So I'm, I'm into it for particular pieces and I'm into it for the general idea. And I think the general idea, and this is something to talk about later, is that a, a, a sort of anthology film, an overlapping film for both a romantic comedy and a Christmas uh, film can actually be really generative and interesting, especially if we're looking at this through a very critical lens, a feminist lens, um, and all the other lenses we can look at this movie through. Um, whether or not does it actually deliver on all of the things it could do to tell more interesting and diverse stories about love and Christmas and holidays in general? No. Um, but I think that there's always that potential for it. Honestly, it's after that, it's it's just the charming Britishness of it. I mean, there's so many of our favorites are here. It's Alan Rickman as himself, Alan Rickman, sad sack man who talks slowly with deep voice. 
there's uh, Prime Minister Hugh Grant. We're so excited for Prime Minister Hugh Grant. Um, I think he's supposed to be called David in the film. It's not David. This is Hugh Grant. There's Emma Thompson, an uh, absolute wonderful queen. How you could do Emma Thompson dirty like that, I don't know. What's not to love about your, your classic British favorites just being themselves? You know, I think you bring up a fair point, and I'm glad you said this, because this is one of my major gripes, if you will, with the film, which is, for me, as a, a, a dramaturg, I study structure, I study text. This film, speaking from a textual analysis standpoint, makes absolutely zero sense to me. The storylines are confusing, they're convoluted, people are related to people, who knows how, until they just show up somewhere. And I think it's a little too messy for an anthology film for my taste. If you're going to introduce nine sets of people, woo, those stories have got to be tight. And it's just not tight here for me. I mean, specifically the uh, Billy Mack, the rock star, and his manager. One, they relate to nothing other than they just show up on TVs and on uh, radios every now and then, which, fine, okay. And then there's there's some sort of relationship that they have that's never explored, but seems to be integral to the storyline, but that storyline isn't integral to anything else. So I think it's interesting that you've cited the structure is something you're drawn to, because I find it actually to be quite distracting and... Uh, one of the major problems, I think, with the film as a whole, content aside, its structure, I find uh, not sound. Oh, for sure. I, to reiterate, it's the idea of it that I think is attractive and, and could be interesting. I think I mentioned in a previous conversation that it suffers from a bit of Game of Thrones syndrome, not just in the sense that I mentioned where the summary uh, decided to take a small selection of what's going on in this film and then put it into this summary, but also in the sense that people suddenly appear in various parts of London, one of the biggest cities in the world, and are suddenly run into each other and have an, a, a, seemingly the hint of a compelling backstory or some sort of relationship that is never fully developed before. So I'll absolutely acknowledge that the structure as it functions is mostly pretty loose. And I think the point about, um, I think you said Billy Mack, it's really Bill Nye performing as himself, dialed up to 11 as an aging rock star with various aging rock star accoutrements, is sort of in this weird place where he's not connected to any of the stories, but he is sort of in the background of all these stories because his song is in the background of all these stories. Again, I think the general idea of it is fine, and I think that there's something that could work here, and maybe it's something that people tried to do better in, I think there was a Valentine's Day film. Again, I think that the gist of it and, and the moments when it does work out, the moments when you do see that, for example, you know, Emma Thompson and however she's related to Liam Neeson are both going through various elements of strife in their relationship. One, because Liam Neeson's wife has died and two, because Emma Thompson's bastard husband ends up cheating on her. There are the little ways that you can see that it's setting you up to see how two people who know each other and are both going through romantic struggles might reflect off each other. But I, I can't in good I can't in good conscience say that it actually delivers on all the promises that it makes for sure. I guess I'm I get really hung up on you're talking about this endearing Britishness of it, and I'm not particularly familiar. I've never been to England or anywhere in the United Kingdom, so I can't sort of speak to that. But I am curious because it seems like, one, 
even in its Britishness, it sort of applies a, a toxic masculinity to the British experience in what I, I'm witnessing in the film. And I say that to say there's a scene that I found particularly uh, challenging for me to, to think through. And that's when Hugh Grant as Prime Minister David, to your point of him not really being named, uh, is in the the I was going to say the Oval Office. <laughs> oh my God, it's not the Oval Office. The Prime Minister's office. And uh, he is referring to Natalie as an inconvenience because darn it, she's just too attractive to be working here and it's just going to sideline him. And then he looks at a portrait of Margaret Thatcher and says, you saucy minx to the portrait of Margaret Thatcher. And so I'm just very confused by the relationship of, of everything there, both the British institutions of power and Margaret Thatcher. So even in that moment, Margaret Thatcher isn't free from the masculinity that's present in the film. Everyone's a problem. I, I, I often, it's, it's not a great line, but I do love, I have to confess, I always get a chuckle out of the saucy minx line for Margaret Thatcher. It's not, it's not a good line and it's not a good look for um, uh, this guy, particularly with what I'm about to say about him later, but it always, any Margaret Thatcher joke kind of tends to get a little bit of a giggle out of me, which is probably says a lot more about how being a woman in power operates than it does anything else. But anyway, uh, I think another point to add about him, about David, um, is that he has this other joke, or there's this joke in the film where he is at a big meeting and he brings up, um, who do you have to screw in order to get a chocolate biscuit around here? At which point, um, uh, the, uh, the woman who he falls for backs into the room with a rolling tray of biscuits as if the film is telling you, oh, her, actually. I don't have a good reason for liking a lot of these things. And, um, but I'm just explaining what, to a degree, what attracts me to it and what kind of shticks that I think if you like them, you would get out of this particular film. Yeah, I suppose that that's where we, where we differ because I cannot get over all the things I, I, that frustrate me about this movie to push me toward enjoyment of it. I just, I can't. There's too much, I think, in every story. And I think the whole movie is posited, and I don't, I don't know, the, I don't think you would necessarily argue against this, but the whole movie is posited literally through the male gaze. And I think nothing better exemplifies that than the storyline of Mark, Juliet, and Peter, the best friends uh, who Mark is in love with, the, the Juliet, the wife. And like, wow, what a view of the male gaze when he's showing Juliet the film he's taken at the wedding. And literally, it's just him gazing at her and that scene for me is just a metaphor of the whole movie not only its content but also directorially like we get these long shots of Ariella undressing to get into the pond to save the manuscripts um, that Colin Firth's character has uh, have blown away in the wind but Colin Firth gets to drop just doesn't get to take any clothes off and then jumps right in the pond to save her unsure to save his manuscript unclear so I just I can't move past it because it's it's so deeply embedded in not only the content but also how it's filmed and how it's portrayed it's a lot of gazing that positions women as nothing more than objects and for me I just can't push past that 
No, I, I understand that entirely, and that was particularly jarring at this most recent washing with Aurelia um, taking her clothes off in order to jump in to this pond to get Colin Firth's very bad, I guess Jamie's his name, very bad um, novel out of here, because I think it is the only time in the film that slow motion is employed, and one of the very few times that close-up, not, not counting the film within a film, that is the wedding video um, uh, in, in the, the other storyline. I mean, that's it's pretty, pretty obvious. And the only thing that goes in the opposite direction or the only thing that would consider a male body or come close, not that we should necessarily be uh, layering gaze upon gaze upon each other, is Rodrigo Santoro's character. Um, he's the only male character who is in any way... I think when he ends up in um, uh, the bedroom uh, later on and gets down to his underwear, he's the only male character, I think, who has any sort of, um, who shows any sex appeal, who shows any skin, really. Whereas the women are not only expected to um, be gazed at in that particular way and to strip in one particular case, but are constantly set up to be ogled like they always are in these films. I think it's also it, it's something else to bring in, and I have to confess was very jarring in this most recent rewatch, and it should should be borne in mind. Is again, I've talked about the potential, and I think I, I do want to come back to this at some point of a sprawling anthology ensemble type film to really challenge a lot of what a romance can be and what a, a Christmas story can be. But to do that, it would have to have a much more diverse cast, and the people of color in this film, particularly the black people in this film are pointedly secondary, pointedly secondary in this film, including the great Chiwetelu Ejiofor, who's married to Keira Knightley's character, but is still the other man in this story because we're not interested in his story. We're inter interested in his perspective. We're interested in, in Andrew Lincoln's perspective. And every other black character who comes up in the story is assisting somebody else or is secondary to somebody else. And I, I counted, I, I think, including the beginning montages and like maybe one small speaking role, there was probably like four South Asian people in this film. And I'm including background artists and the montage, etc. This is a film in London. London. And there are four South Asian people in this film. So all that to say, while we're on the topic of the male gaze and so on, I will happily, in this film that I'm ostensibly supposed to be defending, will add in that if I believe in this premise that uh, this kind of film can be generative and interesting, it would have a long way to go and would be held to a much stricter standard um, in casting practices uh, were it to be done today. I want to acknowledge that because I think what gets me from the moment the film starts is the framing of it and its lack of acknowledgement of anyone that's not a white person. And so follow me here. The opening scene is Hugh Grant talking over film, like footage of people reuniting at airports. And his whole thing is that, you know, if you, he likes thinking about the Heathrow terminal because people are united, you get to see people connecting and you get to see love and, and all of these reunions that sort of bring about positive feelings. And he continues to talk about how even in the midst of 9-11, the, the terrorist attacks, all of the messages that people were sending their family, all the voicemails people were leaving were messages of love. 
a couple of things about this that I think really uh, complicate the framing of the entire movie for me. One, airports are not good locations for any, for anyone particularly. I hate them, but if you enjoy airports, you likely have a level of privilege that other people don't. Airports also are not necessarily locations where people of color and specifically black people in America in particular are able to sort of navigate without being surveilled or interrogated. So that whole framing to me is like, for whom is the airport a space of love and friendliness and welcoming? Because that's not the case for everyone. And I think that entire framing of the film is complicated because by using the example of 9-11, I get so caught up in the fact that, yeah, people were telling their family members that they loved them and leaving these messages of love amidst a horrible circumstance. But the horrible circumstance is directly born out of hate and anger and frustration and elitism or a sense of elitism. And that is actually, I think, a really good microcosm of the entire film. Because, like, yes, there's love in this film. And, yes, there are relationships that contain positive feelings and and consensual uh, loving relationships. But it's all born from a toxic masculinity that holds a level of hate and harbors a sense of resentment toward uh, women in particular that I just can't get behind. And so I find that macro framing to be incredibly distracting for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, It was more jarring. Again, I keep bringing up jarring because it's been a long time since I've watched the film. And that particular way to talk about 9-11 in that sense, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Um, I don't know. I think the airport, I, I would certainly acknowledge that the airport is a place where people who have the means to fly uh, will hang out. But I, I think an airport can house a lot of different emotions um, and a lot of different encounters and possibilities um, that I think could be explored in other ways. And so I definitely acknowledge the general issues with airport framing and what that might mean for the um elements of society who can enjoy the privileges of an airport. But uh, I don't know. I think the resonances with airports are, are a bit broader uh, than that and, and has a lot of uh, potentialities to it. But yeah, the, the 9-11 framing is just... And the film came out in 2003. It was on people's minds, but it was already also being reframed as a tragedy that needed to be gotten past and that was something that united the Western world in the uh, the white Western world, I should clarify, uh, that was uniting um, that white Western world into and basically propelling them uh, on false grounds into a major international conflict. So that one that one definitely jumped out quite quite a bit. So all this brings me to a question, and it may be particularly challenging for you, Lindsay. But if you were to focus in and hone in on one of these stories and say, I want to watch an hour and a half to two hour film that expands on that story, which one would it be and where would you want it to go? What would you most enjoy seeing from it? Huh, that's a good question. My instinct, recognizing that their relationship started in a place that's entirely built on misogyny and objectification of women, I would say the Judy and, is his character's name Jack? Uh... Martin Freeman, John, John and Judy storyline. They're they're the stand-ins for the uh, porn movie that's being shot. Um, because I would say of all the relationships, they're actually getting to know each other 
so much of the love stories we get, even even the love story between Sam, the 11-year-old, and Joanna, the the, the uh, person at his school that he falls in love with, is not built on any sort of communication. There's no sort of love. It's just, uh, I find this woman attractive, and therefore I want to, I, I love her, and I want to have her. Whereas with John and Judy, they're actually talking. They're have, having conversations. They he asks her out on a date to get to know her more. Everything is consensual um, outside of the, the professional working relationship they have. And even in that instance, it, he asks if it's okay that he touch her and do these things um, and asks throughout if it is fine. So that's the story I would be interested. I'd love, I mean, we know that they get engaged and married, um, but I'd love to see where their life leads. Like, are they still stand-ins for pornographic movies? Do they have a house? Do they go to drinks often? What was their honeymoon like? Like they just seem like such a fun group that that's that's the couple I think I would want to follow. And this would would kind of bring me to something that I think the film does somewhat well and could have been pushed into further on. But what stuck out to me in these in this most recent viewing was the the two particular stories that don't work out, and that's the one between Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson's characters and. Uh, between Laura Linney um, and Rodrigo Santoro's character, I think that the the moments, as much as as um, Carl is not as caring as you would want uh, him to be in that moment, I think that can be part of the film. I think part of that that segment of that story is that she has had this lust for this guy for so long, or this crush on this guy, and even when she got him, yes, it was thwarted by her personal. Um, duties to her family that she has to navigate as well but it also revealed that he wasn't that great and that he wasn't willing to um, compromise for her and he wasn't or not compromise he wasn't willing to learn and to accommodate her and I like the fact that um, she uh, lets him go at the end of, of her little segment and doesn't really engage and I always get touched by the uh, Emma Thompson's performance after she discovers that she has been given a Joni Mitchell uh, CD and not the lockup that she found in her husband's uh, coat. I think that that moment right there and the way that she goes back to her room and she stands and has to collect herself and like adjust her bed and all of this stuff, I, to me that that is one of the ways in which even if I'm talking about all the fluff that I like and all the Britishness and the little bits and bobs that I could go to and, and little jokes and all that stuff. That I think is where if you were to do this film again and you really leaned into, okay, let's tell a variety of romantic stories set at Christmas. That's where you could, there's a lot already there because it's talking about relationships that are not going, that may not survive or that weren't meant to be in the first place. So go with me here. This is going to be an involved question. As we've talked about, one of the strange ideological things about this film is that it simultaneously has the spirit of Christmas, this romantic force that is not just about the religious holiday itself, but it's about this entanglement of romance and the Christmas spirit. Then on the other side, we have what Jean Baudrillard, if you are a you know, big fan of postmodern French philosophy like I am, uh, calls the spirit of terrorism this uh, 9-11 moment, this post-9-11 moment. Now, in between those things, the uh, introduction of American characters into this film uh, are twofold. 
One is the George W. Bush stand-in played by Billy Bob Thornton, who is roundly rejected to cheers from the British characters. The other set of American characters are these hyper-sexualized uh, Midwestern women, and including one uh, very badly played Texan by Denise Richards, um, who arrive in the UK at the end of the film and are accepted and celebrated as sex objects, welcome American sex objects. So I'm wondering if the two of you could reflect with me on the really complex nexus going on there between this weird romantic spirit of, ter- of, of Christmas, the spirit of terrorism, and the presence of Americans here, and the strange gender politics going on there. While looping in French postmodernism, of course, yeah, that, that should be pretty easy. Um, of course, uh, of course. Everyone here has read The Spirit of Terrorism, sure, right? Am sure, right? sure, sure. It's on my comps list, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, I also want to add, though, that I think Joanna, um, the young girl who sings at the end, who gets on the airport, I think she or her mother is supposed to be American. Her mother's American. Good catch. Yeah, I think that that's also something as well. I was thinking, too, about how Americans operate in this film because, again, I actually think Billy Bob is doing a good George Bush without doing George Bush, which is, in in this context, is a great way for an unabashedly British film, probably by ostensibly liberal British people, um, would get in a little dig at him because there's a little wish fulfillment in having their Tony Blair-esque um, uh, uh, prime minister stand up to him in public and get applause for it. But there's also, um, I don't know, again, back to Lindsay's point about the framing device that's set up and how the message out of 9-11 is that we should love each other more and how that's supposed to intersect with Christmas, which in this case is not just about love, but truth. That's something that comes up a lot, in that Christmas is the time when you tell the truth. Um, If I'm really getting my tin foil cap on here, you could really run with this and say, if Christmas is about the truth, and if we're thinking about this in terms of 9-11, you should really tell the truth about weapons of mass destruction and whether or not they were really there, whether that's coming from the mouths of your Uh, Prime Minister Hugh Grant or President Billy Bob Thornton. I would challenge that a little bit. Um, And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Laura Linney's character of Sarah also American? Um, Yes, of course. Ah, she is. There's so many sneaky Americans in this film. Yeah, she's American. um, And that is really interesting to me because she's the only woman who's seen as a caregiver that isn't sort of tied to a marital relationship. And the person she cares for is clearly not mentally uh, sound. Her brother is in an institution of some sort, we come to learn. Um, She answers phone calls from him frequently to sort of uh, pacify him, to reassure him, to be there for him, much to the chagrin as we see to Carl when they're trying to sort of hook up for the first time. Um, She fulfills that role of caregiving by answering the phone multiple times, and he Neri asks a question about <laughs> if her brother's okay, what he can do, anything like that. Um, so what I, all that to say, I think there is something happening here with Americanness because the Americans are seen as not or are displayed in in my reading, um, and this is coming from a very disability studies heavy perspective because that's all I've been reading this summer for my exams. But um, 
this idea that like Americans can't fully form uh, themselves or don't have the mental capacity to sort of wrap their head around their own experience. I think that's exhibited by uh, Sarah's brother who constantly needs help. Sarah, who sort of is, is uh, caretaking in that capacity and is forced to live within the, the boundaries of her brother's um, illness and reality. But I also would conflate that to, to be the quote unquote hot American girls as they're listed in the cast list that I saw, which is, a lot of problems but um even these american girls with, that they meet at the bar um are are so taken with colin's accent that they can't even get to know him there's not any sort of like thought process to it so i actually think the americans are sort of posited as people who aren't able to fully form their ideas or what they want or their wishes you could argue that the only exception there is is billy bob thornton as the president but even then he's he's essentially taken over he he has the wool pulled over his eyes as it was by the prime minister who at the press conference really like pulls the rug out from under him and says like no you're after he sees that the president has sort of tried to come on to natalie um so even in that like the americans are not really able to sort of think fully have thought processes that show intellect beyond the the step that's right in front of them and i think that's really interesting and then as you said the the Denise Richards uh, Texan who comes in at the end uh, just sort of seems to be be there f- because she likes British guys. Uh, so that I think is really interesting with the, with the American characters. Um, I think I just want to ask one last quick question before we uh, wrap up here and move on to our antidotes. And that is, since this is the beginning of our uh, Christmas in July series, I want to pose this question, and it is, why is it that Christmas, at least in the U.S., maybe we would even expand that to an Anglophone, you know, U.S., U.K., Australia, South Africa, perhaps, um, context, why does it have a a romantic air to it, if at all? Why does it feature so heavily in rom-coms? That's a great question, because I think that Christmas can be an extraordinarily stressful time Um, where I personally would not want to navigate any kind of new relationship. Um, And it is treated over and over again as a hurdle. Um, And maybe that's where the attraction is. Isn't there a sense that Christmas and having a family at Christmas and being able to show up to Christmas in a committed relationship, uh, in a stable relationship, and navigate all of that stuff together, isn't there some degree of implicit messaging that um, Christmas should be, that part of the bundle of getting everything right at Christmas and having a wonderful time should be demonstrating that you can get into a relationship and have a good time together? There's a there's a family togetherness that's posited as, as the Christmas uh, spirit, the Christmas wish, as it were, in, in films you know, going back all the way to Miracle on 34th Street, like this is, this is the time to be together. But I also think that um, bringing, to Jared's point, bringing a significant other to a Christmas dinner or to anything like that is a very big symbol of um, intimacy and relationship for a lot of folks. Uh, I'm thinking particularly like the dynamics of, of spending holidays when you have a significant other, like where are you going to go? Whose house are you going to go to? How are you going to split your time? And um, 
and just sort of navigating that that bringing a significant other to a holiday like that does very much feel like a statement about togetherness and i would imagine for for folks who really yearn for that sort of relationship christmas time could be a a symbol and a moment to either really celebrate that you have someone to share in that spirit with your family or, or whomever you, sh- you share your uh, holidays with, or a reminder that you have not yet attained that if that's something that you're interested in. So I think, I think it comes from the commercial idea that Christmas is a time for everyone to gather around and, and who are you sort of bringing to that. Amazing. So before we get to our antidotes, Um, I want to do a quick shout out to our sponsors on Patreon. You all continue to be amazing and you empowered us to make an amazing donation to the uh, Henson Foundation this month. Uh, So thank you for your support Uh, then, now, and hopefully uh, as we move forward. Uh, And those sponsors are Bob, Esther, Robert, Sean, Tim, and Em. Thank you so much. Now it is time for our antidotes. Those are our recommendations for films to watch, films or any cultural property to watch instead of this. Uh, Lindsay, what's your antidote? Uh, Right now, I'm going to give you my antidote that I'm watching right now, which is Schitt's Creek. Uh, Amazing television. And I say that it is the antidote to this because I have very rarely seen a show that celebrates uh, women in all of their complexity. So the character of Alexis is this very uh, free-spirited woman who has is very vocal about her sexual past. No one judges her for it. It's, cel- it's a part of her life. It's a part of her existence. And the character of Moira Rose um, is extremely extravagant, very bold, and her husband is just so supportive of her and it's just uh, a wonderful wonderful example of how women can be written in all of their complexity and all of their multiplicity without sort of having to frame it around men's existence but also having supportive men in the picture who just let women exist um, so that's been really refreshing so recommend Shit's Creek it's on Netflix well first I'm also watching Shit's Creek I can also recommend it uh, go Alexis and all her growth that she's going through it's a really wonderful show uh, definitely check it out if you haven't already. Um, and as partly as apology to someone who I like very much and has excellent taste and likes this film that I have failed to defend, um, I do want to shout out a film that they recommended to me on Netflix, The Incredible Jessica James, uh, which stars uh, Jessica Williams, formerly of The Daily Show. It also has Chris O'Dowd, um, Lakeith Stanfield, really good cast. Uh, and she is a, um, uh, you might appreciate this if you haven't seen it, she is a playwright trying to make a breakthrough at a variety of theaters all around the country. She um, ends up meeting this guy uh, on a blind date and hooking up, and they develop this relationship. But it's a great antidote, I think, for the problems of love, actually, in that, one, it's a much more um, diverse cast, uh, more interesting, well-rounded characters, and it approaches... Um, for both of these people, Chris O'Dowd's character and Jessica Williams' character, the difficulty they have over getting over somebody else. Good film if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, my antidote for Love Actually is going to be the 2015 film Tangerine, which is a fabulous, funny, moving uh, film about two uh, trans sex workers in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve. So it is a Christmas movie. 
Uh, and it also somehow manages to uh, reflect back that dichotomy that love actually has with this spirit of terrorism and the spirit of Christmas, but I think in a much more successful and interesting way because part of the film is about these uh, the sex workers moving through their day uh, and being terrorized at various points, uh, but also the incredible love between these two women who care for each other love each other deeply, and celebrate Christmas together. Um, and I, th I think if, if you haven't seen this film, you absolutely must, uh, Tangerine 2015. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay and Jared, for, uh, for coming on the show. And, you know, since it's Christmas in July, and at Christmas in July, we tell the truth, um, I'm so thankful you were able to be here. Uh, to tell the truth, I'm glad I was here. Thank you for welcoming me uh, onto this podcast. And if I'm telling the truth... As bad as this movie is in so many ways, there are still parts of it I am going to treasure and enjoy, even if I acknowledge its many, many flaws. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This was a good time. Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rom-Com Killjoys. And if you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys to gain access to exclusive bonus content. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of one of my favorites, Baby Love, by Colin Langanis. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com, not me, not anyone. See you next time.